The My Baby and Me podcast in association with Nook. Hi, this is Jane Garvey and welcome to the My Baby and Me podcast. This is the podcast that's by mums, for mums. We're not perfect. We've got so much wrong in the past, but we want to share with you some advice, some stories and maybe just something that will G you up and make you realise you're not alone if you're concerned about being pregnant, staying pregnant or in this episode, getting pregnant. We're discussing fertility and staying healthy during your pregnancy and beyond. With me in the studio, the writer and broadcaster Lucy Mangan. She writes pieces for the Guardian and for the magazine Stylist. Good to see you, Lucy. Hi, Jane. Also here, Colin Davis, Mr. Colin Davis, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at Barts Hospital in London and an expert in fertility, Colin. Good afternoon, Jane. And finally, the comedian and mum of two, Lucy Porter, children of four and nearly three. Nearly three, and I'm an expert in nothing. Well, yeah. That's, and everything at the gonna, same time. Okay. You're, you're my kind of contributor. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, now, how old were you both, both Lucy's, when you first became a mum? Lucy Mangan. Uh, a couple of months short of 37. Okay. Very and Lucy Porter. I am trying to work it out. I was 30, yeah, I was 36, 37 when I gave birth. And I was a mere, it feels like a mere 34 when I had my first. But now, <laughs> actually, chicken yeah, but look at me now, I'm, I'm utterly spent. Uh, Colin, um, we're all quite old, actually, to have had a baby in our 30s. Certainly wouldn't have happened a generation or two ago. I think that's a fair reflection of society now that women are starting or have been starting a little bit older to, to have children. And sometimes that's why we um, find there can be more difficulties in getting pregnant. But generally speaking, a lot of women who do try in their 30s do do get pregnant relatively easily. I think the most common age of first-time birth now in England and Wales is officially for the first time over 30, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, but of course, women's lives and ambitions and expectations have changed in a huge way, but not their bodies, yes. not actually the basic biology. So what do you do? That's a tricky question. I think the important thing is, of course, women often try to have a baby when they're in the right relationship. And I think part of the challenges are really being in that right relationship at the age that one wants to be. So there's the competing interest of work and there's also finding the right person to have a child with. Is that why, Lucy's, you got pregnant relatively late or decided to get pregnant relatively late? Lucy Mangan? Yes. And Lucy Porter? It was all about finding the finding right, the, the, right yeah. the foolish man who would take me on. <laughs> yeah, and that therein lies the problem, Colin, because yes. um, it's uh, women probably would consider having a baby earlier in life if they were with the right man. Sometimes even the right man doesn't want children at the right time for the woman, uh, which is very, very complicated. It's very common point that often there is a lot of conflict in the relationship when a woman, sort of in her late twenties, early thirties, thinks now's the right time to have a child, particularly when they want two or three children. And leaving it another four or five years creates a degree of anxiety. And I think that puts a lot of pressure on the relationship. So men have a part to play here. I mean, we don't want to blame men, but but it isn't all about women because largely most women want to have a baby with, with a man. I think that's correct. And I think having support and discussion about the whole process of having a child, what's involved is really important. I also think from a male point of view that men feel responsible and they feel like they've got to provide. And I think one of the uh, messages that I often hear is that actually men don't feel ready because they don't feel able to to be able to pay for the cost of a child and it is expensive to provide the level of support that's needed but I think you never really know till you actually start and try. I mean, look, but does male fertility decline? I mean you well, know there's... The, the point is that the commonest reason for infertility is male factor 
Yeah. And so whereas about 20 years ago, it used to be other conditions like fallopian tube disease, um, problems with ovulation. Nowadays, the number one in most of the fertility units, certainly in the UK, is male factor. And so why is that changing? Well, we don't know, but we think that lifestyle, diet, nutrition has a big impact to, to play. But presumably that's not so much age-related as it is with women then. They're, they're just... Their sperm's buggered from quite early on by lifestyle, is um, it? Over time, to put it, it gets, very technical, well, I, think, I hope you can follow <laughs> me. I then. follow very clearly, but I think that's true because, of course, as we all know, that the the time scale for a woman to have a child, um, it's very much dependent on when the menopause is going to occur, which is, on average is between 50 and 51. So the f- real fertile years are between 20 and 40, optimally in sort of the mid-20s up to mid-30s. For men, they can still have children at a much older age. Although sperm quality does decline over time, it's still not, it doesn't inhibit them from having children. So um, when we hear, I mean, you do often hear and read this sort of stuff, you know, your fertility falls off a cliff when you're 35. Um, is that the case? I mean, have you got absolutely a snowball's chance in a frying pan of conceiving naturally in your 30s? Clearly not, because all three of us around the table did. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, in my experience, where I see a lot of women in their late 30s, early 40s, they can still have children. I think that the most important thing is to look at the situation, decide what may be stopping them from getting pregnant. Try and um, adopt a more holistic approach, which is look at the man, the woman. Are they having intercourse at the right time? Is she ovulating? Are the sperm normal? So basic investigations are really important as a starting point and then guiding them about what they need to do to give themselves the best chance of getting pregnant. Do you come across couples who genuinely don't know actually, when the best time to have sex is, if you just want to get pregnant, if that is your number one goal in life. Yes, I think there are, that, that's the number one point, is actually to know, is a woman ovulating? What's the fertile? What are the signs of, of actually that they're fertile? And a little bit of discussion on that point really helps a great deal, and some women will go away, and then a couple of months later they'll be pregnant. I think... How can you tell if you're ovulating? Well, there are a number of signs. First of all, taking finding out, is the menstrual cycle regular? So are they having a regular monthly period? So let's say a woman has a period every 28 days. It's very likely that she's going to be releasing an egg about 14 days before that period starts. Yeah. There are ways of actually assessing that. A simple thing would be looking at cervical mucus or vaginal discharge. Stringy, watery mucus discharge, some women describe a sort of sensitivity, mid-cycle pain. Mm-hmm. We call that Mittelschmerz. It's a German term yeah. for middle pain. There's and always that, a German term for it. <laughs> yes, if it's and, miserable and mucusy, got a word for it. Fair comment. But it, it's another sign that, that perhaps ovulation is taking place. And there, there are also urinary tests as well. So as we have the pregnancy test, which is weighing on a stick, you can weigh on a stick to see whether you're actually you're releasing an egg and show where the fertile time is. So long before you need to worry about going to, some, to see somebody about your fertility, if you simply, you're young, relatively young, you're deliriously in love, you want to have a family, yeah. just have lots of sex around the middle of your cycle if you're having a regular cycle. I think cycle. that's a very fair comment. I and think if you have too much sex, it doesn't, the quality of sperm doesn't diminish. That's a very good question use, as well. Does it? It, it, it doesn't really because there have been fertility fertility treatments we've done where we've done sperm analysis we've done insemination where we take a sperm sample and tested it two three days running and we find that the sperm doesn't deplete very much at all the ideal situation is to have intercourse on a 24-hour basis so daily rather than have three or four acts of intercourse in one session is to have intercourse um three or four days running 
Now, one of the problems is actually... Which is more realistic. I mean, maybe maybe I've just been unfortunate in life, (laughs) but I think think that may be more realistic. It is more realistic. Um, But actually, one of the challenges is men find it very difficult to perform on demand. Mm. So very often I'll say to to, um, my female partners, I'll say, you know something, don't tell the man that you're fertile, just have sex normally. Because otherwise, if you say that now's the night, men sometimes can't get an erection. Can't well, it's, it's actually quite, it's not surprising, is it? Yeah. I mean, well, they can't put the yeah. bins out on demand. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, another chore. Around. Yeah, one more chore. Well, actually, that's, that was something I was going to ask, because sometimes getting pregnant, particularly if you're really feeling some sort of pressure to get yes. pregnant, it does become a chore when it is meant, it used to be yes. just six months ago. True. Something you've got quite a lot of pleasure out of without really thinking about exactly. it. Exactly, and that very um, puts a lot of pressure on the relationship mm, in those situations. And it changes, the whole yeah. business of sex changes. Correct. So I mean, you're not a sex therapist, but have you got any tips on how we can... Um, <laughs> How we can ensure that it continues to be fun. Well, I think, first of all, taking the pressure off it and, and reassuring um, couples that they don't have to have four, uh, sex four or five times in a day. I think once every day, every couple of days around the fertile time is, is the minimum requirement. And that's often enough. OK, um, let, let's say then things haven't gone as well as people might have hoped and, and IVF is a possibility. There's yes. also... Uh, ICSI or ICSI? Yeah, Yeah. so so ICSI is a treatment whereby one sperm is injected directly into the egg, but a woman would have had to go through the IVF process of having drugs to stimulate the ovaries to have those eggs collected, and then the sperm is is directly injected into an egg to create the embryos. So it's an offshoot of IVF. It's more targeted. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, but you'd only do that if IVF hasn't worked for you? Well, a lot depends on the reasons for not getting pregnant. So if the sperm counts very, very low um, and the sperm functions very, very poor, then the only way of realistically getting pregnant with that sperm level would be to do the ICSI process of injecting one sperm into the egg. And IVF, put very simply, is what exactly? So IVF is a method by which a woman receives hormonal injections for about a couple of weeks. At the end of that time, she undergoes a procedure uh, under light anaesthetic to collect the eggs from the ovaries. Those eggs are then one egg put into each dish. So let's say a woman gets 10 eggs collected we have 10 dishes the sperm are then produced washed down the laboratories and then about a million sperm put into each dish to allow the sperm to fertilize with the egg and over a course of up to five days we monitor the result of that fertilization and choose the best embryo embryos to put back inside the uterine lining and you said earlier that actually most infertility is caused by um, the male half of the partnership what if anything can be done to improve the quality of the sperm and, and certainly there are a number of things that can have an impact on sperm function. So lifestyle is very important. So a sedentary lifestyle, um, poor diet, for example, a high-carbohydrate diet, low-protein diet, so a fatty-based diet is not healthy. Cycling a lot as well. So people who do excessive cycling can put pressure on the testes. And then there are the things that we all know, which is excess uh, cigarette smoking, drugs and alcohol. And very much alcohol is, is a big issue because in society... People do drink a lot, often to cope with the stresses of work. Um, And reducing alcohol can be a very important factor in improving sperm function. And then in terms of vitamins, for men, vitamin C and zinc and magnesium are very helpful in terms of improving sperm function. So uh, a man who'd like to um, become pregnant with his partner... Impregnate. Impregnate, that's it, thank you. Um, There's no reason why they can't take zinc in the same way as the woman might be taking folic acid. Absolutely, 100%. And that's certainly a very sensible thing to do, to take uh, supportive vitamins that can make a difference as well as looking at lifestyle changes so you could have sex once a day as you remember to take your vitamins 
There we are. You could do that. That's a... could write a note on your hand. <laughs> yeah, have sex, take drinks. Yeah. Oh, there's penis. Yes. That'll be <laughs> Oh, must take my pills. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is interesting that, um, that infertility is often, I know that you'd know this isn't the case, but regarded as a woman's issue and a woman's yeah, problem. And, and clearly it's just not where we're at now, is it? And, and that's really important because when we're seeing couples in a in an environment to discuss fertility issues, it's really important that both are there, male and female partner, because there are things that can be done to guide and help couples. Because if a woman just comes alone, that also sends a signal that she's on her own, that she's not being supported. And it's not as much a priority to the man as it is to the woman. And I think it needs to be shared, the responsibility. And certainly I believe in treating the couple, not just the individual. What about the cost involved? Uh, and also the success rate is about, what, 25%? Um, no, I mean, it, it depends on the individual circumstance. I'm always asked, what's the success rate? I'm and sure, people have yeah. these league tables. And I always say the success is very much dependent on the causes of infertility and the ability to achieve results in terms of the treatment given. So, of course, a woman who's 42, 43 having IVF treatment will have between a 10 and 15% chance of success at most. Whereas a young woman who's 28 years of age who has unfortunately got fallopian tube disease will have something like a 65 to 70% chance of success with one cycle of IVF treatment. But I suppose most people coming for IVF, I'm guessing, are actually in their 40s. Yes. That's just a fact, isn't it? Um, Although on the NHS, certainly where I work, uh, we we treat uh, women up to the age of 40 uh, who are funded on the NHS. And so we will see a younger group of, of women, sort of mean age of about 32 to 34 years of age. So so we do have a slightly skewed population mm. because it's funded on the NHS. It means that people do tend to come a lot earlier. Um, but certainly uh, outside of the NHS, a lot of couples are a lot of old, a lot older because they are not funded for treatment as well. And how much would it cost them? So uh, one cycle of IVF could be as much as £6,000. And the reason there is a variation in the cost, it depends on the cost of the medication, the amount of drugs that they need to achieve the egg collection that's required. It's all a long way from, we were just talking about, yeah, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have sex as often as you can around mm. the midpoint of your cycle. It, it might be a bit, become a bit of a chore, but basically you'd probably have a laugh while you're doing it. Yeah. Uh, th- th- this all sounds hard work, actually, partic- yeah. particularly for the woman. Um, but I, I know you understand that, don't you? It, yes. it's, and, and again, you're, there's no guarantee of a baby at the end of it. I think it's a process. My view is that any couple wants to feel that they've done everything in life to achieve their goals. And someone needs to listen to that. They need to listen, support, understand and take them through that journey. And one of the challenges really to give that individualised care as a couple rather than feel part of a, of, of, a, of a treatment rather than actually looking at their needs individually. And part of looking at their needs is to give them counselling and support. And certainly in the fertility world, the role of the fertility counsellor is very, very important. And the regulatory body, the Human Fertilisation Embryology Authority, or HFEA for short, places great emphasis on the um, counselling process. So I think fertility is very well served in terms of giving support to couples. And again, we do emphasise that greatly because we can't do everything by just doing an IVF treatment. If it fails, it's devastating. Mm. We need to give them the, 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 the backup, really, the support that they need because it can affect their relationship terribly. At Nook, we believe our job is to make your life easier. For over 60 years, we've been listening to midwives, doctors, dentists, and most importantly, parents. Only by listening have we been able to deliver a range of products that is specifically designed to satisfy the needs of mother and baby in those precious early years. 
To find out more about the full range of Nook products, visit our website at www.nook.co.uk. Nook. Understanding life. Lucy Mangan, you did have a few problems conceiving, is that is that correct? Yeah, I had um, a useless cycle and periods not worth talking about and I kept track of my temperature and I clearly wasn't, or I couldn't tell that I didn't think I was ovulating. So, um, which in a way was quite good because it meant we didn't try for ages and ages. We tried for about a year with nothing happening um, and I thought, I thought, no, there is something up. So um, I went on Clomid and Metformin and had a, had a little operation to remove some of the bigger cysts on my ovaries and I was very lucky because short, then shortly after that we did get pregnant. I had friends who said that the the drugs kind of had mood effects on them. Uh, did you find anything like that? Was... No, again, I think it was just very lucky. It all went quite smoothly once we just admitted that, you know, something was up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not underestimating that, but that was as as much as you had to do. You took Clomid yeah. and it, it basically the, the problem was sorted. Yes. Um, how long do you think, how, how much further do you think you would have seen, I mean, if things hadn't happened and you hadn't had your son, what do you think you'd have done? Well, I don't know, because, I mean, because we're both sort of natural pessimists, we, we were already sort of thinking about adoption and thinking, you know, if the worst came to the worst, if we just couldn't have a baby. And we were quite, you know, we were quite OK with that idea. I mean, it would have been, you know, much more difficult, obviously, in in reality, and we would have had to, you know, grieve for what you what you don't get. Mm. Um but you but, might, you wouldn't have ruled out IVF, or you didn't consider it. I, no, I think we probably would have, would have tried that. But it didn't seem much less appealing than adoption, which I think mm. for a lot of people, adoption is then another thing you have to get your head around. Yes, whereas, yeah. Well, I mean, I my half sister's adopted, it, and I think we were just that much more tuned into to it. it. Yeah, yeah. Go on, sorry, Lucy. I mean, I think when you are when you are a bit older, when you start trying to conceive, you have been through exactly, all you've those. You've had those conversations, it, yeah. haven't you? So. You, yeah, we. I mean, I because we had been not really using contraception for a couple of years. I went to the doctors and started the sort of they started examining my fertility. But then I was lucky enough to get pregnant. So, um, so you know, in the end, it wasn't needed. But yeah, we'd certainly talked about how far would we go and would we, you know, would we try and and you know, we hadn't really come to any conclusions though. <laughs> People do make judgments, though, don't they, Colin? And I, I must admit, having had children, and, and it is the greatest thrill of my life to have had children, I, I would absolutely, and I feel very privileged. Um, but people do make judgments about people who pursue IVF as though there's something slightly unhinged about them. And in fact, they're only doing what the rest of us have, by pure fluke, been yeah. able to do so-called naturally. Yeah. Um, and you're probably very protective of the people you see about fertility. Yeah, we you? are very protective because we feel for them, really do, mm. because it's a very common problem. About yeah. one in six couples suffer from difficulties in getting pregnant. And I think society doesn't completely understand the effects of infertility. We fought very hard. I've been working in fertility since 1992. And we fought very, very hard. Having worked with Professor Lord Winston at the Hammersmith I knew the effects of fertility on on couples. And the reason for saying that is because at that time, and and not it was only the last five, ten years that actually it's been funded on the NHS. Prior to that, fertility was considered, was not considered an illness. It was considered a, a choice. And society has changed. So now IVF is very commonly used, very commonly funded on the NHS, and it makes a world of difference. And I think nowadays, when you read about people having got pregnant in their 40s, and they mention IVF, it's it seems to be acceptable, whereas yeah. in the past, it wasn't. 
Well, it should be acceptable, just as everything else Absolutely. should be. Absolutely. Yes. And um, let's say then you do get pregnant. It doesn't really matter how you do, but you are mm. pregnant. Um, you have a, I suppose you have a particular responsibility at this time in your life to take care of yourself. Mm. And, um, I mean, it, every woman is different. And if you've not been especially fitness conscious before... Should you should you suddenly buy a pair of tracksuit bottoms and start doing some power walking or go to the gym? Heaven forbid. <laughs> I think the first twelve weeks of pregnancy are difficult. Um, obviously, there's the nausea, the tiredness. I mean, the commonest symptom in the first three months is extreme tiredness. So, asking a woman to get up and go to a gym and do a lot of exercise is tricky. So, normally, the time to do uh, exercise, just walking, as you say, power walking, would be from about 12 weeks onwards. So the first three months, I think, is just get through it. And diet isn't always the best because women will often crave uh, fatty foods, carbohydrates, mm. just to avoid the sickness. So I normally say just take your multivitamins, get through the first three months, and then look to how you feel after three months. And there's nothing... I mean, I remember very vividly going to Tesco's cafe and having a baked potato at yeah. 9.30 in the morning yes. um, when about eight weeks pregnant. Mm. I was looked at, but some real <laughs> disdainful glances came my way. Um, and at that, at that point in your life, you you are feeling very vulnerable and people don't know you're pregnant. Correct. Um, so you do have special permission, actually, yeah, to behave any... Absolutely. Whatever the, however the hell you exactly. like. I read somewhere, because um, I was quite sick in the first three months, and I read somewhere that ginger... it was yes. You could have a pack mm. of ginger nuts yeah. by the side of your bed, and I must have... I mean, I used to eat about three packets a day in the first. Yeah. I was just scarfing what, in the vein them down. Hope it would make you feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also because they're just really nice. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I was. I wasn't keen on them. So that. that <laughs> didn't, I mean, and the things you definitely don't go anywhere near are well, blue cheese. I mean, is that still a thing? Because in France they always eat blue cheese, don't um, they? Well, even the French have accepted that have the unpasteurized cheeses um, <gasps> are not that safe, <laughs> and it's because of this condition called listeriosis. And I think we try to avoid uncooked uh, cheese. Um, uncooked um, meats as well and raw fish um, but generally speaking the uncooked foods are things to avoid and alcohol no uh, again um, the the view is for women who've had difficulties in getting pregnant or have had miscarriages in the past trying to minimize um, alcohol would be ideal in, for most couples a small amount of alcohol is not dangerous but we normally say keep it to an absolute minimum which may be half a glass um, a day at an absolute maximum levels. That's during the whole of pregnancy, or yes, just yes, the okay. Yeah. And smoking, obvious no no. Avoid it because there's direct links to a reduction in the growth of the baby. But if you have, and I'm sure this has happened to, to many women, certainly happened to me. If you had a bit of a night out, only to discover you're pregnant two days later, mm. that's is that a problem? It's not in the slightest a problem, and it's very common to hear that story. So I wouldn't in any way be concerned or worried. Um, I think it's very important to take the folic acid and multivitamins in that circumstance anyway. But apart from that, no, I wouldn't be worried. And if you really can't do anything without a couple of lattes, mm. what do you do? I say one rather than two. Mm. <laughs> so choose the day that you choose the time that you want that latte, and probably in the morning, first thing in the morning, and then just have one rather than two. OK, well, I've already outed myself as going out for a baked potato at 9.30. Any, <laughs> any other cravings, Lucy Port? Uh, Lucy Mangan? I had cravings for crushed ice in the last bit of my pregnancy, which apparently is quite common and nobody knows why, but yes. I hope, God, if I could have such a craving again and be made so happy so easily <laughs> and yeah. so calorie-freely, I would be a happy woman. Yeah, mine was ice lollies, so yeah. I was a bit more... I needed the sugar as well. But, yeah, citrus, my big thing with my second pregnancy, I was obsessed with citrus fruits and I had a grapefruit bar of soap that I used to keep on my desk and sniff throughout the day. And I have no idea why that was so 
And everyone said, oh, it means having a girl, and then I had a boy. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, old wives' tales are, <laughs> yeah. they are God, rubbish. Yeah. They yeah. Yeah. Tell me stuff like Although, I, I got yes. terrible indigestion, and I was told I'd have hairy babies. Sure enough, both had a full head of hair. <laughs> but if I could tell you that the majority of babies have hair on their head. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, but not a full head of well, hair. Like okay, fair, fair comment. No, I think yeah. that's, that's... Okay, and one had a hairbrush as well. It was fantastic. <laughs> uh, she hasn't used it since. Um, what about vitamin supplements? There are special vitamin supplements yes. you can buy. in the. Co- I mean, yes. what, they presumably are not necessary or are they not a bad thing? Well, the, the vitamins that I think are important, the two major vitamins are vitamin um, D and uh, folic acid. And folic acid is a B vitamin. And they're the two main ones that are important. Do you get those on the NHS or you have to pay um, for them? I don't believe there are... Uh, prescribed on the NHS. But equally, there are some vitamin supplements you should avoid during pregnancy. Yes, yeah, so vitamin A would be the one to avoid in pregnancy. And why is that? Um, that's associated with problems in the baby's development, and I think it's important not to take that if at all possible. So it's important to check your multivitamin supplement when you're actually taking... What about if the mum... Um isn't well in pregnancy can, can a, a mum I'm just talking not, not not something really dramatic but just I don't know a throat infection or something yes and I think it's very important to see your GP where when you do have a throat infection because it's commonly due to a virus rather than a bacteria but the GP will know what's uh, common at that time of year it's also important to determine whether they need antibiotics because there are safe antibiotics in pregnancy. oh you can take them you can indeed but it needs to be checked with the GP and if you have a cold is it okay to have a, one of those lemon drinks or a couple of paracetamol yeah. Yes, I think I normally say lemon and honey with some um, paracetamol is absolutely fine and take lots of fluids as well. Okay, but not Nurofen? Definitely not Nurofen, definitely not Voltrol, any what we call non-steroidal medication. Right, okay, got that. But paracetamol would be all right. Paracetamol is fine, at the normal dose. Yeah, sure, okay. Now, um, what about when you have your baby and babies do get, I mean, because they're very, very vulnerable, they get everything, or so it seems in the first couple of months. When do you panic with a very small baby? Well, I think it's very important to, to really understand your baby. So new, newborn babies, um, it's a completely new experience. But for first-time mums, it's very difficult to know what a baby's cry is. And so I think if a baby isn't feeding, if the baby is very lethargic, if the baby's got a high temperature, it's very important to um, get the advice of a healthcare professional, either GP, midwife, health visitor. It's very important. And if they just don't feel it's right ask the question. It's better to seek reassurance than it is to leave it too long. But babies do get ill a lot, don't they? I mean, not with serious things, fortunately, but with those everyday lurgies that, well, they've never had before, so they're going to get them. Yes, and but babies are... Um, uh, they, they get... They become unwell very quickly, but they also get better very quickly as well. So I think if after 24 hours the baby's still unwell, seek uh, the advice of a healthcare professional. And there are little... There are medications suitable for very young babies? There are some. I think they're paracetamol-based. They're the ones that are, are safe. Yeah, if, you, if you've never bought Calpol before, you'll yes. be buying it in bulk Absolutely. Um, for about 15 years. Yes. <laughs> um, Lucy, did either either of the Lucys have any scares with very little babies? And I did with yeah. my first, with Emily, I did end up in A&E one night because her poo looked funny to me, <laughs> which in hindsight, you think, how ridiculous is that? Oh, but it's not really, is it? But no, and I mean, they are very... And the nice thing is, is, of course, like the NHS is brilliant and they are incredibly reassuring and kind. And I think, I mean, in hindsight, I think what it was was that I was just incredibly incredibly tired and stressed and losing my mind slightly and uh, and the baby was actually fine but but at no point was I made to feel like I was being a hysterical 
anxious mother and then with her second baby of course we we've you know been very lucky he's been very well and also we've just worried a lot less I think every parent's big fear and I, I don't want to be melodramatic but it's it's a reality is is meningitis Colin so it, and this can strike both teenagers and people in their early 20s and indeed very very young babies but they can't tell you how ill they're feeling obviously so there is a test you can do on the rash that they may or may not have but they could have with a glass just what what do you do yeah, so that's called the glass test and you put it on the rash on the skin you take the glass off and if the rash doesn't go away then you call an ambulance okay and it's nice 999 for a diabolical emergency and 111 if you just want to ask a question. If you want some advice, exactly. Great, okay. Thank you very much indeed, Colin. And thanks too to Lucy Porter and to Lucy Mangan. Mm. You can find them both on Twitter. It's at Lucy Mangan and very much less straightforwardly. Sorry. At, yes, at (laughs) Luna Bimberton. Uh, I'm on Twitter too. It's at Jane Garvey1. And Colin's website has got all kinds of help and advice on conception, fertility and birth. And that is at excellenceinwomenshealth.co.uk. Feel free to share this podcast on Facebook and anywhere else you like with your friends and your fellow parents-to-be. I'm Jane Garvey. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the My Baby and Me podcast in association with Nook. Visit us at nook.co.uk. spring is that you warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles meet the super light collection the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors these must-have travel shoes have a lighter than air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever plus they're comfy right out of the box that means more comfort and less baggage experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort visit allbirds.com and use code super 24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of 48 dollars or more that's a-l-l-b-i-r-d-s.com code super 24